Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 464, Prototype. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we get a fresh infusion of warp plasma so we can study an episode of Star Trek, one at a time, until we get to all of them, to study the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, Prototype, the one where Belana Torres diligently saves a broken-down robot then it tries to kill everyone on Voyager. Hey, you win some, you lose some, am I right? I'll be back with trivia in just a moment, just as soon as Norman tells all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, we'll keep it nice and tight for you this week. Trivia for Prototype. We have an episode that was written by Nicholas Correa. Not a new name for Trek fans. You may remember that Nicholas is credited on two DS9 episodes, Hippocratic Oath and Indiscretion. Those came after a career in TV that had already seen him as a part of well-known shows like The Incredible Hulk and Airwolf. He wrapped up his career as a frequent writer on Walker, Texas Ranger. Nicholas passed away in 1999. So while Nicholas gave the initial pitch, it was actually Ken Biller, uncredited here, who gave the script a complete rewrite and focused on Bolana and her relationship with the robots. Honestly, most of the production staff were not on board with this one, but it was Michael Piller who saw the potential of going beyond the first concept, which was much more about just warring robots in space. The episode was directed by Jonathan Frakes, and this marks a milestone for Frakes, as it was the final episode of the Berman-era TV treks that he directed. Of course, later the same year that this episode dropped, his name would be on the big screen with his feature film directorial debut, Star Trek First Contact. And, of course, he returned to direct multiple episodes of Star Trek on TV in more recent years with Discovery, Picard, and Strange New Worlds. Let's talk about our guest stars. There are two highlights here, and both are in more than one role. Hugh Hodgen plays the automated commander of the Praelor vessel, as well as the titular prototype. Hugh has just a handful of pro credits on screen. Prior to Voyager, he appeared in the horror short series Terror Vision. This is his only Star Trek credit, and his final screen role appears to be the 2002 action movie Shakedown. Rick Worthy, in his Star Trek debut, also plays two roles, both the featured role 3947, as well as the Kravik automated commander 122. Rick is from Detroit, but got his acting chops on stage in Chicago. He was nominated for a Jeff Award while there, and by the early 90s was making multiple TV guest appearances. 
the regular and recurring offers started soon after, and you may have caught Rick on The Man in the High Castle, Felicity, The Vampire Diaries, Supernatural, and even Battlestar Galactica, where he played Simon. Star Trek kept calling too, and he found himself in a guest role on DS9 in the episode Soldiers of the Empire, then a small role in the movie Insurrection, followed by more Voyager, a long recurring role on Enterprise, not to mention side projects like video games and even a recent fan series. It's worth mentioning here that both actors provided the voices for their robot characters, but since they were behind vacuum-form plastic masks on set, they had to ADR the entire script in post-production. As someone wise once said, I hate the company of robots. Actually, I think that was said by a robot. Prologue. From a seemingly colorless, flickering, and staticky point of view, the USS Voyager appears from the vastness of space, then is lost in a brilliant aura of light. Suddenly, the point of view, still in black and white and still visually unstable, now observes that it is being proverbially weighed and measured by Tuvok, Balana, and Captain Janeway, who all have differing opinions on how to proceed studying what was beamed aboard. Tuvok believes it, whatever it may be, is a security risk. Balana believes it may be an opportunity to study a new technology, and Janeway agrees. Shortly after, in main engineering, both Harry and Balana are hard at work trying to stabilize it, and just as they dial in a few finely tuned power settings, the subject of their effort stares across the room and zooms its point of view to an L-Cars monitor, staring at its, or rather his, own metallic and humanoid-shaped robot body. Act 1. After assessing that the humanoid-shaped mechanism is in fact a robot and not an android or cyborg, Harry and Balana develop differing opinions of how to best move forward with their damage and repair assessments. As they banter back and forth about teching the tech to bring the robot back to even the most minimal operating capacity, the robot begins to show signs of consciousness as it sputters and mutters the words, Prelor 1. Balana thinks that the robot is trying to communicate. Harry believes it's not even aware of where it is or who they are. And as their deliberations reach a professional impasse, Balana, affectionately addressing Harry once again as Starfleet, orders him to get some rest, even though he too playfully protests and tells her that he can work just as hard as she can. However, needing a recharge of her own, Balana retires for the meantime to the mess hall, where she manages to finish off two pots of coffee before Neelix cuts her off and regales her with a tale of how a good night's sleep helped him solve the elusive Seventh Spice mystery for his signature Jabalian omelet. After checking in on the still-dormant robot, Balana returns to her quarters and barely tucks into bed when she suddenly rushes out to sickbay and activates the EMH, who, even though he's a doctor and not an engineer, suggests that the robot needs a transfusion of sorts. And after working the problem aloud with the doctor, Balana rushes back to engineering. With Harry's and Captain Janeway's help, Balana gives the robot its transfusion of healthy warp plasma. Unsure if the transfusion was successful, Balana's concern is soon assuaged as the robot grabs her arm, identifies himself as Automated Unit 3947, and thanks her for reactivating him. Act 2. After updating her enthusiasm for what she has just accomplished in her chief engineer's log, Balana finds herself back in main engineering and building somewhat of a rapport with Automated Personnel Unit 3947. It, or rather he, by the tone of his voice, is profusely thankful for Balana's abilities and being an extremely proficient humanoid. Balana is curious to know more about 3947 and how he ended up adrift in space, to which he responds that he was on an asteroid mining facility when it exploded. As their conversation continues, 3947 asks Balana if she is a builder, as in one that created 3947 and his species. And as she describes her role and skill sets, 3947 believes that she can create a new power module for him as his original builders no longer exist. Later in Janeway's ready room, Torres advocates for 3947 and his desire for her to repair him and produce new power modules for him and his kind to continue and procreate. However, as sympathetic as she may be to the plight of 3947, Captain Janeway sees this as a clear violation of the Prime Directive and cites that 3947's species was created in such a way 
where they are now coming to the end of their natural evolution, and that any interference by Balana and Voyager towards the extension and procreation of 3947 species will have long-lasting repercussions in the Delta Quadrant. In short, that's Starfleet for We Aren't Gods. Back in engineering, an obviously deflated Balana tries to explain Janeway's decision to 3947 and Starfleet's prime directive of non-interference policy in the natural evolution of a species. 3947 is puzzled by this because his kind were created by builders like Balana and will only survive by the hand of builders, which gives Balana pause and much to think about. On the bridge, an alien vessel approaches Voyager. And after mutual scanning protocols are exchanged, Janeway makes contact with the Praelor's vessel's automated Unit 6263, who in turn politely requests the return of automated personal Unit 3947. And after preparations have been made to transport 3947 back to his people, just as Bolana hands him a canister of warp plasma to take back to his ship, 3947 stuns her and the transporter technician with a jolt of electricity and abducts Bolana as they are both beamed off the ship. Act 3. Unable to transport Balana back to Voyager, Janeway hails the Praelor ship, demanding her return or face retaliation. Harry informs the captain her words were heard, just ignored. Janeway therefore orders Tuvok to power the forward phaser banks. Meanwhile, on the Praelor ship, after coming to from being stunned, Balana demands to know why she was taken against her will. 3947 informs her that the room where she is being held, which is equipped with various tools and technology, is where she will build a prototype so that more Prelar units can be patterned after it in order to repopulate their species. Balana lambasts 3947 by reminding him that she helped him, brought him to life. But to no avail, for all she can do at this time is watch as Voyager tries to mount a rescue mission, but is easily beaten back by the Prelar ship's superior shields and firepower a tactical fact of which 3947 reminds Bolana as she watches helplessly. On the bridge, Janeway and her crew are stunned at the Praelor ship's ceasefire, but understands why when Bolana suddenly appears on the view screen and confesses that she has agreed to build 3947's prototype in trade for Voyager's safe passage. In Bolana's estimation, she has no other choice, which is punctuated as 3947 steps in front of her, staring down at Captain Janeway through the view screen with his emotionless, metallic gaze. Act 4. Back on the Praelor ship, Bolana has resigned herself to her incarceration as 3947 gives her strict instructions as to the resources, materials, databases, and schematics that she can access in her efforts to build the prototype unit. Now thinking more clearly as an engineer rather than a prisoner trying to escape, Balana questions 3947 as to all the reasons why they, meaning his fellow Praelor robots, were unable to build a prototype of their own. Rebuilding that rapport they once shared in Voyager's main engineering station, 3947 deflects the newly arrived designated command unit 6263, who has come to ensure that Balana is in fact working at optimal capacity and is not delaying progress in any way while buying time in order to formulate an escape plan or give Voyager time to regroup and rescue her. Speaking of which, back on Voyager, Captain Janeway and her command staff assess the damage that the ship suffered from the Praelor attack, which was substantial. Warp capacity is prioritized first so that they have the speed capable of even attempting to rescue Balana before she finishes the prototype. Harry needs 72 hours at least to stabilize the dilithium matrix, but Captain Janeway feels that's 24 hours too long. Dismissed. That's Starfleet for, you have 48 hours. Meanwhile, Tuvok believes that if they can maneuver a shuttle inside the Praelor's defense field, they can effectively beam out Balana and escape. Tom is up for the challenge to which Chakotay ribs him about not wanting to lose another shuttle. That's Starfleet for, be careful. Back on the Praelor ship, progress is slow and steady as 3947 sees every setback as a failure worthy of report to 6263. But Balana educates 3947 as seeing every setback as an opportunity for another success. As they continue to work and grow closer again, Torres learns more about 3947 and the builders. And even though he's been alive for over 1,314,807 hours and 33 minutes, he knows little of Balana's culture and is curious about her knowledge and exposure to artificial life forms. She tells 3947 about Data, who is not only sentient, but also treated as an equal to a builder from where she comes from. Multitasking all the while, Balana has been completing the power module, which is now ready for installation. And with a few adjustments to the flux capacitance, the prototype sits up 
identifies itself as Prototype Unit 0001, to which an elated Balana shakes 3947's hand and congratulates him on becoming a father. But that celebration is short-lived as the Praelor ship is rocked heavily by incoming enemy weapons fire. On Voyager, even though Janeway and Chakotay have been working on a tactical diversion to draw fire from Tom's shuttle rescue, they can't help but watch in awe as a similar alien ship fires on the Praelor ship. Janeway realizes that she may have just wandered into the crossfire of a robotic war. Act 5. As Janeway orders Paris to back away from the two warring ships, new enemy representative hails Voyager and identifies himself as Kravik Automated Commander 122, similar looking to the Praelor, but golden in color. 122 advises Voyager to withdraw, but Janeway explains that she has a crewman held hostage aboard the Praelor ship. 122 dismisses that information and again warns off Janeway, who sees the Kravik ship as the diversion she's been looking for, and orders Tom to ready his shuttle for the rescue attempt as Chakotay takes the con. Inside the Praelor ship, 3947 tells Bolana that they are being attacked by the automated personal units from the Kravik homeworld, whose builders programmed them to attack the Praelor units, as they were programmed to do the same to the Kravik. Looking for a way to peacefully negotiate a ceasefire to end this robotic war, 3947 tells Bolana that both the Praelor and Krevik automated units killed their respective builders because they actually did negotiate an end to their war and wanted to deactivate the robots so they would stop fighting, which made the builders their enemies, and the robots were programmed to destroy all enemies, builders notwithstanding. And with the birth of this new prototype unit, the Praelor will indeed be victorious, as their numbers will now continue to grow while the Krevik population will dwindle and die out from a war and technological failures. Meanwhile, as the giant battlecruisers continue waging their war, Tom slips in between their weakened defense fields and tries to get in closer to optimal transporter range. Understanding how she has just changed the balance of power between the Praelor and the Krevik, Balana terminates the prototype's life. Suddenly, the shimmer of a transporter beam engulfs her, and just before she dematerializes, she makes sure 3947 knows that she was never his enemy, no matter what he must now report to 6263. Back safely aboard Voyager, Janeway and Taurus are enjoying a cup of Neelix's famous Landris Blend coffee, reflecting on certain decisions that could have changed the fate of the Delta Quadrant. But in the end, Balana knew that destroying what she created, even though difficult, was necessary and for so many unspoken reasons. The end. So much to get through. Three, five, seven, nine, eight. I'm just going to give you a number now, because I figure that's how we'll you know, refer to things in this. It's a little tough to keep track of. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. I kind, of, I kind of would mind, because it's actually a designation for a prisoner, but uh, 24601 is a good designation. 24601. Right? You have yeah. to. You have mm-hmm. to. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I, first of all, I, I think the opening is very clever, uh, but uh, static still a thing huh because i I thought by the 24th century you know even those robots would have gone all digital but seriously i i think that that is such a cool clever way to do the teaser having that po yeah that struck me interesting as well and probably because it reminded me of like when murphy as robocop was brought online in the robocop movie uh, I wonder if Freaks was watching So there was that. a little bit of static, yeah. and obviously there's a little bit of that, kind of like that hospital bed POV disorientation of people's faces and fingers, like, pointing at you and prodding at you. I just liked, it set a kind of level of paranoia, in a way, like, for the opening segment, mm-hmm. which I thought was nice. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very cool. And, and it, it was interesting, like... Right from the beginning that you have Tuvok and Balana, like really, like you guys are arguing about <laughs> this. I mean, we, we don't understand its power system. Therefore, we need to get it to engineering to keep it running I, I mean, versus letting it shut down. I, I mean, look, I get that we have to move the story mm-hmm. along, but uh, wow. Yeah, and I like um, <laughs> we haven't seen this in a while. And I think that this this lends towards that. I guess it was like a a. a plan of sorts that Harry and Bellana were supposed to have this relationship because this mm-hmm. is that moment mm-hmm. where they return to and not often enough I think where she and Harry have that just playful banter and she calls him Starfleet which goes all the way back to the way that she yep. kind of you know labeled him in caretaker I like that moment yep. I really did yeah yeah it's nice when you see things that show up later that reinforce the relationships and the characters and sometimes Star Trek gets into this rut where it's just like 
story, story, story. But especially a show like Voyager, where, again, you're all stuck out there together, like, let these relationships unfold. And that was was cool. I, I do have to say, like, I just generically speaking, I hate the idea that a lack of sleep makes one tough or a hard worker. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I need my sleep and I'm awful when I don't get enough, which is too yeah. often. Uh, so, yeah, it's a bad, bad cycle. But that sort of stuck culturally is like, oh, yeah, you must be tough. Because you don't get enough sleep and you work really hard. No quiet quitting on Voyager. No quiet quitting, right? No, no, exactly. Being cut off from coffee, though, I think we've uh, we've all been there. (laughs) You know, had a few cups too many. Feel the heart start to flutter a little bit. Like need to cool. I I know the scene where no, she's drinking coffee. She pours like from an empty pot. She drinks from Mm -hmm. an empty cup. I know that that's played for a reason, but have you actually ever done that in your life where you're so engrossed in something that you don't even realize that either your plate's empty, the bag of chips is empty, you know, that pizza box Mm -hmm. is done, the coffee is empty. Like, I don't think I've ever, especially with a liquid, I don't think I've ever done that. Like, I'd like to know where my liquids are going. Phrasing. (laughs) I, 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 right, right. I I, I think I've done that before. I I think I have. It's not, not a great thing. Yeah. All right. Look, let's talk about the, uh, the robot that we meet or robot, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, robot. I love the look of 3947 and his robot friends. (laughs) It's, it's dated, Mm -hmm. But to me, in a very charming way, Uh, like this would be right at home on Buck Rogers. But for some reason, maybe because of all the actors around and and the very good performance by uh, Roxanne Mm -hmm. Dawson here, it just didn't feel silly the way that I think it could feel silly. To me, it's just right. Now, look, your mileage may vary. Fully understand that with either you or others in our audience. And I, I realize that modern effects have far surpassed what they did here clearly on a budget somehow it just works for me and I, I think this goes back to something that we've said many times about like this era of star trek where it is pre 9-11 before things became bleaker mm-hmm. and you know a little bit more harder edged you know with the realism so i think that there's yeah. a little bit more fun in suspending the disbelief that this is an actual primitive robot from a culture that created them to last pretty much forever so they don't really evolve we don't know how long well we do know how long about what it's like a million plus hours this thing has been alive yeah it's like over 150 years or or somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 years so when it was first brought online it hasn't been updated or enhanced for 150 years so Mm -hmm. who knows what the krennic or the praelor could have created in that time if they actually survived their own doomsday machines yeah i i just i I like the idea of you know there's something kind of theatrical about a robot costume like this where it's just like look it's a mask it's a guy in a suit that's all we can afford but at a certain point that just doesn't matter because what matters is the reactions of all the people around this Mm -hmm. character and today that would be very overdone like i i get how good and how convincing robot characters are now i mean look at uh k2so in rogue Mm -hmm. one or something like that yeah that is very convincing still manages to get across the the i I guess for lack of a better word the emotional life of the character but somehow here it's just like okay if i'm gonna buy it in one scene i'm just i'm I'm gonna stick with it through the rest of the show totally believe the reality that they're Mm -hmm. in here i do love i'm a doctor (laughs) <laughs> followed by Bellana saying not an engineer. Right. Nice little variation on that Trekism. I'm here okay, for it. So that brings up something I don't think that we've seen, but we haven't seen. So Bellana's about to get she gets into bed. She's still trying to figure out like how to fix the robot robot. Robot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she jumps out of bed. She's still in her pajamas. She goes to sick bay, activates the EMH just to talk it through with him out loud. Do you have to actually have yeah. him activated physically in order to talk to him? Or can't you just talk to him through your comm system in your quarters, right? That is, yeah, that is a little weird. That's one of those things that feels like it's just built for the dramatic purpose of getting those characters in the same yeah. room. But in reality, yeah, hit a button and it's the computer loading that program 
to then be on your monitor because we've seen the doctor on the monitor plenty exactly. of times. You know. Now that said, I do like the conceit of Bellana talking out a solution to her problem with the EMH. Like, I, I think that's just kind of a, a cool concept that she's going to all these different angles to try to figure it out. So why not have a late night conversation with a computer? <laughs> you know, just one who's got a personality. Um, but by the time we get to that, we are 13 minutes into the show before the robot has any mm-hmm. life. I, I'll save that for my later notes. You know, one of the things I think it's interesting about this show and, and or and any of the Star Trek series, it's rare that the captain takes orders from one of his or her command staff. But in this case, mm. because because Bolana is the lead on how to bring this robot back to life, and I like how Janeway's rolled up her sleeves because she has that scientific curiosity to help out. I like that she's mm-hmm. part of the process. You know, she's not like saying, "Hey, this is my ship. I'm going to take the lead from you. You're you're just an engineer." No, she's fully on board with this is Bolana's project. She's the lead. We're going to get this done based on what she ha- uh, tells us to do. And I love after the robot comes to life, I love the smile that Kate gives to the camera. Yeah. Just like, yeah. look at this, look at this science that we've done. This is pretty amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, nice supportive moments mm-hmm. like that all around. Uh, not a supportive moment though. When three, nine, four, seven says, I thought Lieutenant Bellana Torres was a builder. Oh, <laughs> Bellana, you are getting played. Even in that deadpan monotone voice that he has, you are getting played. So <laughs> three, nine, four, seven, because it said so many times, I said it, you said it. Everyone in the episode says it. Yeah. That's an abuse of 47. Don't you think? <laughs> it, it is a bit of an egregious 47. I'm glad that at a certain point, Bellana says, can I call you 39? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, please, can we just stick with that? Um, interesting to note here that this is one of the few Star Trek aliens where you can't see the right. eyes of the actor. And that was always a big deal. It's like, if you're going to have an actor in a guest role, we always want to see the eyes because, you know, the windows to the soul and mm-hmm. everything, these have no soul to speak of their robots and i thought it was handled very effectively although uh reading what one of the actors said about that is that they couldn't see when they were on set they they had cut very very tiny little slits so they could just barely kind of make out where their marks were but they had to just remember it and hit those Hmm. marks so tough job all around if you're inside that scene. you know there's um i know we're going to get probably to a deeper discussion of this particular scene but there's the scene where where balana goes into janeway's writer room talks about kind of like the individual rights of mm. the praelor species versus the prime directive and i just love how mm-hmm. naturally captain janeway goes to her personal replicator makes two cups of coffee and sits down like this conversation requires coffee but how about those yeah. glasses? Because she hands Bellana just this hot cup of coffee in a glass, <laughs> in a glass, you know, mug. True. And maybe it's insulated. True. I don't know, but I'm like, that was some hot yeah. coffee in a glass <laughs> mug. Yeah. Good call. Hey, shout out to Flux Capacitance. Yes. All you uh, folks have been following the life and career of Doc yes. Brown. That was exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I like how I brought this up uh, and, and kind of like focused on it a little bit in my recap, but. I do like how there's a little bit of a Scotty reference in there, you know, kind of hidden in there. You know, when Janeway said that's 24 hours too long, that's Starfleet for worse Scotty yeah. when you need him, right? Right, right. But that's exactly the point where Kim, like, thinking he, he should have thought, like, yeah, this will take me 48 hours. Therefore, I will say 72. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. right, Captain. Yeah, 24 hours too long. You know what? For you, I'll do it in 48. He obviously <laughs> didn't watch Relics before he told the Captain no. that, you know. Or talk no. to Jordy. Okay, mm. so Chakotay kind of like trolls Tom a little bit about I don't want to lose another shuttle. Mm-hmm. Hasn't Chakotay already lost two himself? I, thank you. Yeah. Like, you, you have exactly. no high ground to stand on here, right? No. Um, no. no. And I think that in the course of the of the storytelling, I think both you and I and maybe a lot of people in the audience, we were hoping for that data reference, right? Because a measure of a man isn't yeah. too far from anyone's mind. You know, when it comes to sentient life forms, mm-hmm. especially the way that 3947 asked, are there any, you know, artificial life forms where you come from? Mm-hmm. 
poor trailer robots. They should have gotten the extended warranty on that new model. We'll get right back to prototype after a few words from this week's sponsor. Hey, this week's sponsor is you, specifically the you who have joined us over at patreon.com slash mission log. You've taken advantage of our uh, early access to episodes mission log. Maybe you've gotten some of the swag that comes along with it. And hopefully you've joined us over at the mission log discord, which, by the way, is exclusive to our members on Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash mission log, you can take a look at a variety of different ways that you could support us. And each one of those tiers will give you entry into the Discord server. So when you enter the Discord server, there are a variety of different channels that you can find that probably supports your favorite fandom, whether it is science fiction or whether it's classic movies, whether it is food, mostly food for many of us. Most of the time, you'll find what you like. And if you don't, we can create that channel there for you. Our group is expanding every day, and we can't thank you all enough for inspiring us to be able to enjoy your fandom as well. Speaking of expanding, the people who have joined recently want to give you a shout out. Brandon, Tristan, Robert, Mel, Michelle, thank you so much for your support. And by the way, one of the best things that has really expanded in Discord lately is all the live chats that we're doing. So every week we do a live chat about the latest episode of Mission Log, but that's getting added to discussions of the Orville, discussions of Stargate, all kinds of things. A great way to hang out live and in person, talk with your fellow fans in a uh, in a nice supportive environment that is our Discord. So you can join us for as low as a dollar a month, patreon.com slash mission log. We will see you there. All right, Norman, an episode that has so many ideas competing for mm-hmm. attention here. Fortunately, they're, they're all pretty front and center. They're, they're all just like right there for us to grapple with. And I, I think, you know, to have a discussion about the prime directive just right there in the middle of the show, laying it all out on the line. I love Janeway in this scene. That that scene between her and Bellana in the captain's writing room, talking about what's at stake here, um, that is a scene that I just watched over and over again because it, it's the Janeway that I like to see, just taking this principled, scientifically informed stance uh, – arguing with her officer but in a respectful thoughtful way like it it just that scene hit everything for me and i i I, like even something as brutal maybe sounding as this where balana says you know you can't call it a flaw the idea that that these robots would not be able to continue their existence without this power Mm -hmm. cell this is the way that they were designed and then, you know, skip forward a couple of lines and Janeway saying extinction is often the end of natural yeah. evolution. That That's kind of harsh, like in a Picard mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but she ain't wrong. Right. And I almost I, I, I kept thinking how some of these lines would play if you were talking about naturally occurring species biological species as opposed to manufactured or mechanical species like uh what if you substitute the vidians here the vidians have not naturally evolved to the point that they can fight the phage that they're fighting they have to through artificial means survive but maybe extinction is the end of their natural evolution i mean i think with any life form and let's take the human race, for example. You know, there are reasons why mm-hmm. there are so many technologies that exploit that one base principle that all humans have. They want to extend their own lifespan. You know, we want to live past kind of like the shelf date of the average lifespan of normal human being, which is what anywhere between like, what, 85 to 95 years, you know, at best. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of like seeing yeah. that done, you know, with the intelligence level of these robot species that want to survive past the creation of the builder's flaw quote unquote, that uh, Janeway and Torres are talking about. What I love about that scene, and I think that it really took me to get to that scene to really appreciate the episode prior to this scene. What I love about this scene is that 
Janeway can step back. She can take that, you know, that bird's eye view of what is happening and reassess the situation without the attachment that Torres has to 3947. When Torres comes into her mm-hmm. ready room, she's emotionally compromised by the conversations that she's had with 3947, therefore advocating for mm-hmm. a life form, a species. Janeway probably is would be on her side if she weren't the captain. That's how I felt about it. But as the captain, she's like, I need to see what the fingerprint is going to be from any decision-making that we make from this moment on. Whatever we do yeah. here is going to impact everything because we don't have the right or we don't have the responsibility or both to say, if we do this, therefore we aren't responsible for the rest that comes after. That's really the biggest part of this equation. What comes after our interference, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I love the, those lines, uh, who are we to swoop in, play God, and then continue on our way without the slightest consideration of the long-term effects of our actions. That is phrased Perfectly, I think it's terrific writing and, of course, delivered perfectly by Kate. It, it is a great line. It pretty much just sums up everything. Of course, Voyager has been swooping in <laughs> and intentionally or not causing all kinds of situations with long-term consequences for people in the Delta Quadrant. But not today. But- not today. At, at least – look, I, I mean for, for as many times as that argument can be made about the problem with Voyager, it's not – like they are not self-aware. You know, yes, they haven't been around for all the consequences, but at least they are giving thought to what's thought to the very idea that their presence disrupts. I mean, I don't think this is going to happen because I don't think this ever happened in Voyager. But can you imagine kind of like this, you know, this 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 league of like of all these species that were affected by Voyager coming to the Delta Quadrant? They're all sitting around like you have the Vidians and you have the Praelor and the Krevik and, you know, the Kazon and all of them are saying, you know what? Life was really better until these until these guys showed up. Thanks a lot, caretaker. Yeah, everyone was everyone was (laughs) fine. We're all doing our own thing thing you know there was no drama and they show up right and then just they mix everything up and now we're fighting each other for no reason and they've like invaded our space and they've kind of like left our resources you know barren and worthless and look we were all you know that's just kind of like they have to Janeway has to make sure that that doesn't happen every single time that they encounter a new life form, you know, or are in violation of any, you know, permutation of the prime directive, no matter how thinly you slice it. Well, and what I love about the discussion about the prime directive is then 3947 just (laughs) stating to Balana, I do not concur with your captain's decision. No (laughs) kidding. (laughs) No kidding, man. But uh, let me take this back kind of another direction. There is something in these robots, whether the Krevik or the Praelor, both of them, that made them revolt against the builders, made them want to propagate and maintain their species. Mm-hmm. So what if the design flaw is the will to survive? Because if these had just been so many, you know, uh, robotic assembly arms on an assembly line for cars or shuttles or whatever else the original builders had designed, those things don't have, at least as far as I know, in, you know, 21st century, the world that we occupy, those devices don't have a will to survive. They do their job. And then they can be shut down, they can be reassembled, they can be torn apart, they can be melted down into other newer, different robotic arms or, you know, phones or tablets or whatever devices those materials need to go to next. So going back, like if you try to think through the culture that got us to this point, hey, we're going to build robots to fight our wars. But by the way, those robots will be programmed with a certain will to survive apparently with no checks on it so that they can even see us as an enemy that seems like a pretty big flaw in the program well i mean that's not any stranger to science fiction as we knew it at least knew it back in like the 1990s i mean let's take it 10 years before 15 years before this happened i mean that's terminator you know the robots of skynet have become you know uh they've become so sentient that after they were created to fight Mm -hmm. the wars of their builders 
They turned on the builders because they didn't want to be exterminated themselves, and that gets perpetuated into, say, like the the you know the uh, the copper top power units that we became for the robots of the Matrix, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, it all goes back. Thank goodness to the three laws that uh, Asimov set out for his robots mm. <laughs> that they need to follow orders, but they need to not harm humans, <laughs> you know, in the course of doing so, or else you know there is a failsafe that they can shut down or stop, but. We always tell the science fiction stories where the robot's programming is a little bit off, just just enough that they can work around their own programming and, you know, become a threat to us. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up data because there was – you know, I thought there was something both – charming and thoughtful and important about that reference back to data. Also kind of funny, though, because 3947 says, does your culture include artificial life forms? Well, data is really the only one. You know, I, I think Star Trek has this weird relationship with robots, with artificial intelligence mm-hmm. anyway. And then 3947 says, are they your servants? By the way, Balana, when you're being asked that by a robot, there is only one correct answer, which is no. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you have to make a case for data being the same. And I thought that was uh, a pretty cool idea. Again, infusing 3947 with a kind of, you have to wonder, is it just built in? Is it an evolved trait to have curiosity about another species like himself. I think the biggest question I have uh, with just uh, introducing data, you know, as the, as the sentient life form, is that mm-hmm. there, have, there has to be other life forms that aren't as sophisticated as data, but are sentient up to a point. And I guess this really comes back to what is data or what is a sentient life form from a Mm -hmm. mechanical point of view, because that's what Picard was arguing as advocate for data, you know, against uh, against Riker, you know, in that and trying to create a summary judgment for data as a life form, you know, against Maddox, who Mm -hmm. wanted to basically create an army of datas. You know, what is that? I don't know. Do you? Do you? You know, that one. (laughs) Uh, But let's go back to Nomad, since we're not jumping the timeline. You know, Nomad, we've already talked about. I Mm -hmm. mean, would you consider Mm -hmm. Nomad a sentient artificial life form? It's hard to say. Uh, Nomad certainly evolved its programming, mm-hmm. you know, um, and became more than just, I guess, the original intent or more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. I mean, but, but that's, the, that's the difficult yet fascinating thing about dealing with any kind of manufactured intelligence. Like at a certain point, if they for well, I mean, it's the way we phrase it is, you know, if they pass the Turing test, then it doesn't really matter if we know that they are sentient or not. They pass the test. So we're going to treat them as if they are. And that's how we treat data. You know, it, it, it's really about our reaction, not so much deciding that this thing, this manufactured intelligence has sentience, has awareness. Um, Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But now the ball's in our court, how we react to them, how we uh, uh, integrate them into our world. uh, You know, that that's really what that comes down to. Uh, You know, we said back on mission log, uh, covering measure of a man, measure of the man is not sizing up data. The measure of the man is sizing right. up us. How do we mm-hmm. react to the possibility of this being a new life form, of the possibility of this being sentient? You know? Yeah, I wanted to kind of pivot um, kind of like the what this means into what has happened to the builders of these robots. Because obviously the builders didn't mm-hmm. want their <laughs> creations to turn against them. And this is mm-hmm. where I think if if you have watched like a majority of the Star Trek series and especially the original series. There was something here that was very much of a, a touchstone for two specific episodes that I think was a wonderful way of kind of revisiting the tone and the message of these two episodes in this episode prototype. I'm talking about mm-hmm. a taste of Armageddon specifically and the doomsday machine. Yes. Yes. So yeah. as, as this episode developed, 
you feel that there is a certain sanitization of the war that was being fought between the Prelor and the Krevik. Because the war mm-hmm. was never stopped per se by the people, the organic beings that started this war in the first place. Just like Anon 7, just like MNR and Vendikar, right? If they mm-hmm. actually stopped the war in the first place, then the machines wouldn't have to fight the war and make those decisions for them. And then the machines turned on their masters and then created the perpetuation of their deaths until there would be no more masters. That's what we're seeing now in this episode. That's that's something that is, I guess, at still the uh, a focal point in Star Trek that we haven't been been able to kind of decode, right? Well, something that I love about this episode is, yeah, I, you and I have the same inspiration. Uh, Taste of Armageddon, absolutely. Uh, this is a way that those two species, those two races, however you want to typify the Praelor and the Kravik, decided to make their wars a little tidier. Um, you know, the inspiration, I'm sure, to create these robots was to have a tactical advantage to, quote, win the war. Uh, but what they end up with is this never-ending cycle where these devices are just out there fighting in mm-hmm. perpetuity. So what I love, you have this anti-war message. You have this war is stupid kind of message built in. There's also something about the creation of a technology like the creation of the doomsday machine, like the creation of these killing booths that we have in a taste of Armageddon, like the creation of the robots in this story that is a Frankenstein story. You know, uh, on the on the micro level, you've got Balana as the creator, as the person who gives life to this, such as we want to phrase it, you know, but gives life to this heap of metal and plastic on a slab. And she is truly inspired by that. She is thrilled with the creation, thrilled with the discovery, but in very short order realizes the horror of what she's done and has to destroy her creation. Think about, go back to a taste of Armageddon, go back to whoever it was that built the Doomsday Machine in that episode, the Doomsday Machine. The thrill of discovery, the thrill of invention, to have the tactical advantage, to have ideally a defensive weapon, that's all well and good. But at a certain point, that technology will escape you. That That is the, the message that keeps getting reinforced by science fiction in general and Star Trek specifically when it comes to something like this. It's like, yeah, you created, but then mm-hmm. what? What happens when that creation turns against you? And I think that's uh, that's a great thing to see played out here. But the one thing, though, that I think would have brought this a little bit more home for me at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you felt this way. And I want to ask specifically for the audience, you know, how did you feel about this particular hit or miss when it comes to why did Balana care as much at all? Right. I really mm. I know that there's the scientific curiosity, the engineering curiosity. Perhaps it's the it's just as basic as finding and seeking out a new life form, which materializes in front of them in the transporter room as they Mm -hmm. beam it aboard. But I just feel like in order for us to be invested in Balana's story more so than what was already, you know, what we have already seen, I wanted to know why so much that she just poured almost everything that she had in there to almost to defy her captain, you know, to, to go sleeplessly and to just have her all, all of her thoughts consumed by trying to, Mm give this life form, you know, uh, a new lease on life for lack of a better term. Why? You know? Well, maybe this is a question for you for the next segment. So hold that thought. Did the emotional beats work for you where 3947 and Balana get to connect in some way, have their conversations? And honestly, he's trying to butter her up (laughs) in his robotic way. The opposing factions in the story want to be Rock'em, Sock'em, Restock'em robots. Well, 
Well, that was quite the uh, cliffhanger there ending the last segment with a question posed to you, Norman. Not unlike, you know, ending an act with, say, our chief engineer beamed away to a uh, robot ship where she is captured and uh, essentially, you know, held with the the threat of death unless she... uh, can construct a power source of these robots. Our stakes are not quite that high. Our stakes are just like, let's talk about an episode. Let's see if we think it held up. But but not to put any pressure on you, <laughs> it was a pretty big cliffhanger mm-hmm. for me to ask you in the last segment. Did the moments work for you? Because I think this will partly play into whether or not you feel like the episode held up for you. I think a lot of this episode rides on the idea that we believe Bolana's journey and we believe her connection to this robotic species that, that we've just met. So does the episode hold up and, and does that part of it maybe hurt or help your enjoyment of this show? I mean, that was a, a more particular question, as we do mm-hmm. with, you know, with our discussions on this particular show or any particular podcast that we do, sometimes our opinions and our thoughts change by the time we actually get to this segment of the show. And mine have a little bit when it comes to Bolana because my biggest, I guess my biggest stumbling point throughout enjoying this episode is why does she care so much? And maybe it's just because that's that's the, the natural curiosity of an explorer, and in this case, an engineer. It's not that she was curious about a biological life form. She was curious about a mechanical mm-hmm. life form. It's something that she has the ability to actually affect. And I think that having the biological life form aside, having the mechanical life form in front of her, and then acting like a biological life form because of its sentience, because of its intelligence, because how it was manipulating her, because 3947 was in fact manipulating her to do a specific thing in order to achieve a specific goal. We were, I was kind of along Mm. for that ride, but again, it's just still... Why was she she so invested to the point where she would argue that point with the captain and to the point where she would even think of defying the captain in that see, way? See, I, I don't mean to derail you here because I, I want you to continue with your, your wrap-up. But uh, see, you're bringing up these things that I think are really interesting questions about how this story would have played out if, say, we were dealing with a biological life form rather than a purely mm-hmm. mechanical one do our do our feelings about the outcome change or our feelings about maybe what they're capable of change and what our responsibility and duty is that like, does all that get thrown out the window once it's a biological life form as opposed to a mechanical one and there's a question here about you know Bolana's reaction to a mechanical life form that, as you just said, is manipulating her. You know, that mm-hmm. at a certain point, like it's just so many ones and zeros that are firing that are able to play the next person. If it's not her, it's somebody else. <laughs> you know, uh, so sorry about that, but please carry yeah. on. Oh, I think that um, you know in. When it all kind of comes into focus, maybe, pardon the terrible pun, but I'm going to have to say it because I wrote it and I told you about it and you laughed. So hopefully I'll get at least one more laugh out of it. So when the story came into focus, maybe subliminally, I was thinking that this was Balana Runner. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Or maybe even do Klingon's dream of electric Mm -hmm. targs. Yep. There you go. You had to do it. Right now, all all Uh the groaning aside, um, I think one of the reasons why I still do like this episode, and I think that I'm, you know, slowly becoming a little bit more on board with Bolana's motivations because a lot of it's familiar, and I think a lot of it's familiar, and I can probably like superimpose Bolana's motivations to the motivations of say what was happening in Blade Runner, mm-hmm. you know, or was happening in um, with the two characters in Blade Runner that were responsible for giving the Nexus Six androids more life that was jf sebastian and dr Mm -hmm. eldon tyrell i think that she's in the position of if i can do it what is more intoxicating than the power of of creating and Mm -hmm. giving life right if i have the power to do it but what she wasn't seeing was the bigger picture of if you do this then all of these other things happen where these life forms have a limited amount of energy and life because they were achieved or they were to achieve a limited amount Mm -hmm. of service per their programming. Uh, There's a little bit of, you know, some familiar things here that help ease the process of enjoying this episode. Like I mentioned before, Tom Baker's 
Doctor Who's Robots yeah. of Death, which is kind of similar in that way. Um, but I, what I think that really sells a lot of what was happening in this episode is the way that we as the audience, the way that we interpret emotional responses from an emotionless gaze, the emotionless yeah. mask of 3947. He can say things one way, and we can interpret it a completely different way because it has no emotions. We you, we superimposed those emotional beats onto the robot. Yeah. You know, so trust or betrayal or love, affection, hatred, anger, all of that stuff in an emotionless gaze means nothing to him as a response, but means everything to Balana and to us as the audience. So overall, I really do like this episode a lot. I just wish I felt just a little bit more of the emotional impetus as to why Balana was so um, was so affected by wanting to help him at the I, very beginning. I think that's a fair want. And that's the kind of thing that maybe if this were a novel rather than a 45-minute TV show, you could really get into a bit deeper. But I, I think you you summed it up there in the question that I was kind of grappling with a moment ago, which is here you have a mechanical thing, a manufactured thing, but by virtue of the fact that it has, you know, two arms and two legs and a face, such it is, but this blank face. And this goes back partly why I think even though the design is clearly designed on a budget for a TV show, it's still very effective at what it needs to do. And what it needs to do is what you just described. Give the actors a chance, the characters and the reality of the story here, give them the chance to react and put their own emotional values on what's happening. It's this really cool, obvious, but inspired choice that you have this calm, cool voice, this pleasant voice coming out of those robots. Yes, <laughs> right? You're absolutely yeah. correct, John. Good morning, Dave. <laughs> that, which is actually not a line from 2001. But anyway, uh, uh, but it, it's a really great choice then because, yeah, it, it says something about our as humans or Balana's half human half uh, Klingon ability to apply our own values like like we have this sort of you know, almost biological imperative that we're going to anthropomorphize we're going to put emotional judgments on something even when it's not intended mm-hmm. I think it's just a, a cool idea here that uh, that gets explored intentionally or not as for the episode I think that like I said before, I think the pacing is just a little weird. And this is one of those things that could have worked very well as a novel. But we spend an awful lot of time on Balana at the beginning being tired and talking through her technical problems. And then we save a lot of action for the very end. And I don't think that that hurts the episode necessarily. I just think it's a strange choice because they could have gone through and built some different beats into these acts. We could have gotten to 3947 having some life earlier than he did, but whatever. As I said a moment ago, I think the robot voice is wonderful. That that very Hal-like voice, it hides the menace. It, just wonderfully so. The premise, you know, a robotic war. <laughs> it, it sounds great hearing Janeway announce it. Like, have we just stepped into a robotic war? Like, it's so bonkers, pulpy sci-fi, and yet they sell the reality of it here. It is a little deus ex machina by the time we get to the end. Oh, look, here comes the other robot ship to fight the first robot ship. Okay, fine, but I'll buy it. Because, again, the characters here have sold me on the reality of what's happening. But I think the thing that really saves this episode is just that we get a lot of big ideas in the course of this 45 minutes. We talk about the Prime Directive and our obligation to not interfere or maybe to do so, maybe to interfere. We we grapple with the danger of runaway technology and then the ugly, inevitable outcome of an ongoing war. Like th- These are all the things that classically Star Trek deals with and deals with in profound ways that ask the audience to think about long after the episode is over. 
it's all good stuff. And even if there are production missteps, to me, those are easy to overlook. This is one of those hard sci-fi conceptual episodes that comes along once in a while on track, and I just really want to embrace it. So to me, it definitely holds up. And I'll skip right ahead here to say that as far as morals, meanings, messages, I think that everything with Bolana and the robot is very interesting. You can ask yourself about whether this is a prime directive violation, whether or not Janeway made the right decision, but... The, the real twist and the real message here is in that final act. Why, you know, quoting from the show, why continue your war? Has anyone in all these years ever tried to stop this war? That That's, I, <laughs> we are currently, there are places in the world right now, as we speak, as we record mm-hmm. the show, that are at war. Has anybody just thought, thought, can you stop the war? Can you not instigate a war? Can you not start a war? Because inevitably, this is the path that you lead down. And 3947 responds, we are programmed to destroy the enemy. It is necessary for our survival. This, like you just said before, Norman, this is the spiritual successor to A Taste of Armageddon in its anti-war message. It was, it's the survival of the ideology of these two mm-hmm. species. It's not necessarily the survival of the robots themselves. It's the survival of their hatred for each other in perpetuity through yeah, their technology. Yeah, think, think about it. It's really just from beyond the grave, these species saying, like, yeah, we're just going to keep fighting till the end, even though they mm-hmm. – well, we don't have the whole story here, but apparently they tried to stop. But that bit of programming, that bit of hatred, that bit of warmongering lived on in the programming even after the biological species was long gone. So I'll I'll supplement it. I'll I'll wrap it up with this. You reap what you sow. If you build the machines of destruction, then they and you will destroy. The legacy of the Prelar is that they built a doomsday weapon, their own, by creating these machines to fight their dirty wars for them. And they thought that it would clean it up, same way that the Enar thought in Taste of Armageddon. But we know that this only has one outcome. Uh, what about for you, right. Norman? And for the robots, they can't, you know, they can't justify their existence without asking that one question. You know, are we, this, are, you know, are we, you know, doing our programming justice if we choose not to kill today? Yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what stops the humans from doing, you know, from furthering that war. Just choosing that. You Wouldn't know, it be interesting? Today. I mean, if you had uh, this episode chooses not to end that way, but there is another way. Like, gosh. Go back to Picard leaving a command for the Borg to sleep, okay? Mm. What if there is a way to reprogram these robots that are at war with a simple program that is not to fight? A a simple program that says the war – oh, here we go. A simple program that quotes John Lennon and says war is over if you want it. You know, that's all they have to do. You have to change the program by one line, but the robots can't see to do it themselves. It, 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 that, that's yeah. a bit of our own sort of human programming loop that we're stuck in, is that every generation has its own wars, reinvents its own wars. And I think that it's, a, it's an interesting way of looking at what faces Balana in this episode, because that's kind of like where I landed with morals, meanings, and messages. You have the prime directive versus the God complex directive, mm-hmm. right? So you have the seduction and the allure of becoming a God. We haven't seen, I mean, we haven't seen that in a while. We have seen that in Star Trek over time. And let's go all the way back to, you know, where no one has gone before or where no man has gone before, I should say, with Gary Mitchell and mm-hmm. Dr. Daner you know, getting their ESP powers from the Great Barrier, becoming gods over time. Or Q tempting Riker with the power of Q, right? You know, you have to ask these questions. You know, these are kind of like these godlike powers infused into beings, you know, that have to choose for themselves whether or not they deserve these powers or what are they going to do with them. But then you bring technology into play. Does technology, does technological might give you the right to be a god? Mm -hmm. You know, because Balana has the power of the builders for 3947. That gives her the power of their gods to her. So is she being seduced by that through 3947 to perpetuate their life and then put that argument in front of Janeway and say, hey, 
you know, they need my help. I have the ability to help them. Isn't that what I'm supposed mm-hmm. to do with my mm-hmm. ability? Are you allowed to play God that way? So you have to ask the question that Dr. Ian Malcolm asks <laughs> in Jurassic Park, the very first Jurassic Park. He said, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That's Janeway in this situation where she's like, of course, you have the ability to help a species. The big question is, what is the after effect of that help? And where does it go after we're gone? You know, what will we leave in the wake of our interference? And she's 100 billion percent right, (laughs) right? right? Yeah. Because think about it this way. That one robot could have been what we know of in the Alpha Quadrant as the very original Borg Uh, uh that some interfering species along the line gave life, gave a new purpose, and didn't understand what it would leave behind in its wake, and that became the Borg. I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. that's what happened. I'm just saying that that's what could happen here if Balana interferes with a godlike seductive power that she can't that no, that she can't resist and creates an entire species that should never have been. So let's get back to Dr. Malcolm, (laughs) right? He said that, and this goes to the Prelor and the Krevik. This isn't some species that was obliterated by the deforestation or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs, in this case, the robots had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. And in this case, so were the robots. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Alliances. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Each one of these robots has at least a four-digit number. I predict a high likelihood that their Twitter avatars are eggs. Transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.